Welcome to La Jolla Community Church. We're so glad to have you with us and joining us for worship this morning. Uh, let's uh, lift up our voices this morning, give God praise. If you're able, would you stand? Let's sing.
through this last week safely so we can gather before you here in worship we offer up our prayers to you Lord and though you are vastly larger than we can even imagine you hear our prayers and even more importantly to us you actually listen though you are universe encompassing you are an intimate individual and personal God and we thank you for that Lord as we count down the days to the end of the year and the merger of this place with Grace City, we pray you would be guiding the people involved as they put the pieces together so we can hit the ground running in 2024. Take down the stress level for everyone involved and let that be a, a time where they can feel your presence in their midst. And lastly, Lord, thinking about this coming week, Thanksgiving, we have a lot to be thankful for this is the best place and time to live in human history right here, right now, and though the world seems crazy and getting crazier by the day, we know you are in charge. So strengthen our faith, give us hope, and pass on to your son our heartfelt gratitude for his sacrifice that opened up the opportunity for us to be in communion with you both now and forever. In Jesus' name, amen. Welcome to La Jolla Community Church. If this is your first time joining us for our worship service, we are so glad that you are here. On your way in, you should have received a bulletin. On there, you will find our Connect card. If you are looking to get connected with the church, we encourage you to fill out that Connect card so we can get to know you. If you have new contact information, please fill out that Connect card so we can keep you updated. 
On the other side, you will find our prayer card. If you have anyone in your life who is in need of prayer, please fill out the prayer card or visit our website at ljcc.org prayer. On your way out, you can drop these cards off in the foyer or the box mounted on the wall. Well, uh, happy almost Thanksgiving. Would you please turn to somebody to your left or right and ask them what their favorite food on Thanksgiving is? Real quickly, just turn and ask, what's your favorite food on Thanksgiving? Okay, now another question. Now that you're all friends and talking and loving being here uh, next to each other, who chooses what you eat on Thanksgiving? In, in your family group, friendship group, just, just tell the person next to you, I know who chooses the food and who is it. Just do try that one out. Okay, so what you've just established is who has the power. Who has the power? Do you know that the number one thing people in this country consistently, survey after survey, complain about? It's food at Thanksgiving. Who is it that holds the power, keeps us in, in thrall to eating the same stuff that we complain about year in, year out? That's power. Uh, we're talking about power today. We've been talking about four things that we uh, easily and often use to substitute for God. This is following, uh, we, we did a series asking seven primal questions, things like, am I safe, am I secure, am I wanted, am I loved, uh, am I successful, do I have a purpose in life? And these are the questions that whether you consciously think about them and ask them or, or just unconsciously live out of them, these are the questions, unless you find an answer to those things, you're going to fill that need, that void, with something else. Uh, 750 years ago, uh, Thomas Aquinas made the observation that these four main things, wealth, pleasure, power, and honor, are things that we substitute for God. And when you think about it, you think, well, yeah. What is it that we go for? What is it that we build our life around? Uh, it's, it's finding an answer to these haunting questions in us and then finding a way to substitute for the God that we hope is with us. There's a great, uh, I, I don't have a slide of it, but it's just a bunch of letters. And, and when you look at all these letters written right uh, together, a run-on word, uh, at first glance you look at it and it looks like it says, God is nowhere. And then if you look at it carefully again, you realize it says also, God is now here. And so one of the things that we do every week when we get together is to talk about the God who is now here. And to say, what are we substituting for God? Because anything and everything we substitute for God is less than satisfying. This is why fresh cranberries are better than the one with a can and the lines on it that wiggles like this. But you know what's funny about that? The same company that makes the wiggly stuff sells you the berries. So they've got it covered every way you could possibly go on Thanksgiving. That's power. That's a powerful thing. And you know who runs the, the, this this cranberry mafia in the United States, the growers, 700 families that grow cranberries, they hired a bunch of people to run the company and market the product. And so when you think about a perfectly integrated seat of power, 
It's the guy that's out there in the cranberry bog every day saying, I just hope my team does a good job because I got a lot of cranberries uh, to, to give them. There's no substitute for the things that we yearn for most. There's no substitute for God. Uh, and this is such an old uh, conversation that yet uh, never seems to get resolved because we somehow keep thinking, maybe God is holding out on me. Maybe there is a better version of life. Uh, this is from Genesis 1 and 2 when we see God creating his perfect and good creation. In Genesis 3, there's this conversation uh, between the serpent and, and, and the two people, Adam and Eve. And, and basically the serpent doesn't push back on anything that God has said or done. He doesn't try to push back on the instructions and the promises that God has given and made to, these, to this couple. What he does is he says, did God really say? And, and the insinuation is, you know, God might be holding out on you. There might be a better thing. You just don't know it. And so this is our quest. Uh, and it's a tough one because sometimes church gets in the way. The institution of church can be so off-putting that you say, okay, it can't be here. Uh, sometimes it's reading the Bible and you're confused and you say, I, I can't find, I can't make my, my way through this. Okay, get that out of the way. Then you start listening to pundits and you realize, ah, oh, they start and end every conversation with, here's where you send money if you're listening on, 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 in a media format. And yet we have this, this yearning that nothing but God can satisfy. So that's what we've been talking about. We've talked about wealth, we've talked about pleasure. Today we're talking about power. So when you think of power, how would you define it? Just right now in your head, how would you define power? Here's a definition that might um, capture yours as well. Power is capacity and ability to direct or influence people and events. Power is capacity and ability to direct or influence people and events. Does that resonate with you? Does that sound reasonable to you? So power is some level of capacity and ability to, to, to make things happen involving people and events. And so here's the funny thing about it. Uh, if, 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 if you think about on a scale of 1 to 10, how much power do you have? Nobody in the room can say none. Everybody has power. All human beings have power to some degree. Babies cry. What is more powerful than a crying baby? If it's in the middle of the night, you jump up and you deal with the baby. If they're a little bit older, now they're a toddler, and you're in the checkout line at Vons, and that baby starts screaming for something, everybody in line next to you on the other side is all saying, I'll do anything, give that kid anything to stop them. They have the power. Just make the kids stop. It takes this heroic parent to look at the kid and go, you know, you think you're going to win this? You're not going to win this. And the kid goes, really? And they cry louder. And all of a sudden, people's hands are reaching in and going, here, take this. Would this work? Power. Babies cry. Bullies make threats. Friends bless. That power and influence. All these examples, right? Teachers educate. Coaches motivate. Politicians legislate. Servant leaders elevate. You have so many ways to exercise power. Think about the people who have been most powerfully influential in your life. Maybe it's a painful memory when I ask you that question. You think, yeah, I was coerced. I was threatened. I was intimidated. Or you might say, yeah, there were people in my life. 
just watching them live was inspiring and motivating, clarifying. The words that they would say to correct me and comfort me and encourage me and sometimes confront me, life-changing. Think of those people in your life and, 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 and thank God for them when you do think about them. Those people who saw something in you and thought, you know, it'll take me some time and some effort. It may or may not be worth it because this kid might reject it and resist it. But they took the time, and looking back now, you say, thank the Lord they did, because their influence is so powerful. Maybe they said to you, you know, you're really good at this. You should maybe think about that. Maybe they suggested a school you go to. Maybe they helped you see that the behavior uh, that you had embraced was going to absolutely cut you off from all the wonderful dreams and aspirations you had. Think about the way power is used. Uh, were you ever bullied at school? Were, were you ever the bully at school? And some kinds of power seem huge until you get a larger perspective. I was one time walking from the store across the, the local elementary school on my way to my house. I, I was probably in junior high, cutting through. Back then, you could actually play on the fields when the school was closed, or you could walk through the campus. And I'm walking uh, down this hallway, outdoors, California, so it's all open. And I'm walking along, and all of a sudden, there's this dude, this hood, this mean-looking dude. Back, this is like in the 70s, this guy was dressed in black. And, and he, had, he was just this menacing-looking dude. And he comes up to me, he goes, hey. And I'm just this little wimpy kid, I'm like, what? He said, turn around and face the wall. I'm like, and I said, no, <clears throat> no. And I'm realizing this is not convincing. He's just looking at me menacingly. And all of a sudden, some dude comes around the corner, some dad kind of a guy, with a dog on a leash, taking the dog for a walk, and sees, sees, sizes it up immediately, seeing me, and he goes, hey, kid, is that guy bothering you? I looked at the guy, the guy looked at me, and I said, yes, he is. <laughs> and the guy goes, beat it. And the guy went away. Now, later, I realized, you know, as I got older and bigger, I realized that guy was intimidating to me, but probably if I just kicked him or slugged him and ran like mad, he probably wouldn't have chased me. But, you know, this is the kind of power that, that we all fear most. You're walking down the mean streets of San Francisco or L.A. or, or New York or anywhere, and it's late at night, and you're walking along, and all of a sudden six guys are walking towards you tough-looking dudes. And as you walk up to them, you think, this is it. I'm done. And the guy goes, hey, yeah. You live around here? Uh, yeah. We're looking for this place. We're coming to a Bible study. All of a sudden you go, really? You know, power. Oh, my gosh. You know, we, we, the fear factor is so great. We're afraid of God. That's why we substitute stuff for God. We think God is going to ask something of us or do something to us or make us do something we don't want to do. Instead of saying, if God made me with these needs and aspirations, I wonder if it's God who can actually fulfill them on his terms. Uh, and especially if you start reading the Bible again from Genesis 1, 2, and 4, you realize this is a good God. This is a loving God. This is a powerful God. So what's your power and how do you use it? Uh, do you have authority? Do you have some official level of authority? Are you a university professor? Are you a physician? Are you a scientist? Are you an expert in your field? 
Uh, do people do what you require and request them to do? Do you have official power? That's authority. Um, do you just have influence? You don't need a title. You don't need a position. You just are the person. Wherever you sit is the head of the table. Not because you're intimidating or bossy. You just are a person who uh, is confident and competent, and people tend to look to you um, uh, because you have influence. Uh, maybe you do have a title. Uh, maybe you have a weapon. You might think, well, that's kind of, that sounds kind of creepy, a weapon. Well, uh, a smile is a weapon. It's a weapon to bless. Humor is a weapon. Learning how to read people is a weapon. Okay, it's not really a weapon, it's a resource. We think we need weapons. What we need are skills to do uh, justice to power. For example, if you have to remind people you're the boss, you're not the boss. Hey, and I'm the boss here. You go, really? I mean, even little kids have figured this out. You're not the boss of me. When you're talking to their older brother or sister. Uh, are you familiar with the, the Stanford jail experiment? The Stanford jail experiment happened in, in, in the early 70s, uh, late 60s, early 70s. A guy named Philip Zimbardo at Stanford University was studying power. And one of the questions he was still resonating with uh, 40 years after the, or 25 years after the fact, it was how did the Holocaust happen? How did seemingly ordinary people, mundane, you know, the, the school teacher, shopkeeper, how did they become Nazis and do what they did? And so he started doing these experiments, and some of them would be, it, it, all of them had to do with giving people power. And so the, in one case, somebody was in a kind of a control booth, watching through a glass, somebody uh, being interrogated, and they had this dial, it was a fake dial, but the idea was, you know, if they, if they moved the dial, this person would get an electric shock. And what would happen is, as they were in this environment, and there was a supervisor saying, hey, that guy's not cooperating, you need to give him a shock. You need to give him more of a shock. And pretty soon, these people were going, yeah, let's just crank this thing up. Another one was, they were, they were ja there were jailers and there were prisoners. Now, these are all Stanford students and people from the community who are getting paid like five bucks a day to participate freely, voluntarily in these experiments. They could walk out the door anytime. But you have these people caught up in being in the jailer and people are being, being oppressed as the prisoner. And all of a sudden, some kid realizes, hey, my parents are paying 40 grand a year for this. You know, <laughs> you can't do this to me. Uh, but there was this intimidation, this power, and um, I was talking about it with a friend of mine this week. I said, hey, do you remember that, th those experiments back in the... He goes, yeah, I went to Stanford, and I had Phil Zimbardo as a professor. He had endless versions of these perverse experiments to get people to be coerced, to test their capacity to be coerced by power. Have you, have you ever experienced that temptation? Have you ever heard these words come out of your mouth if you're a parent? Because I said so. These are gold-plated power words that parents and others rely on. One of the worst things about empowering people is that they act empowered. When our kids were little and we were thinking about sending them to Montessori school, I said, well, what is a Montessori school? And they said, well, they help, they help children become more assertive. I said, we do not need that. We don't need that program in our home. We have plenty of, we've got that covered it is no need to pile on. So how we use power reveals our capacity and our character. How we use power reveals who we are. You get to read a person's capacity for mischief 
And you get to read their character by the way they use power. Because you know when somebody uses power well and wisely, you respect them, and, and it, it, it makes life better for you. Even if you initially resist it, and, oh, you know it's good, and you find out there's a benefit. When somebody is abusing power, especially power under color of authority, have you ever been harassed by a policeman? Now, if you're a black kid anywhere, you know that your parents have been saying, now look, this is what could happen, and this is how you should handle it. And you think, why does that still happen? It still happens. I remember one time I was leading a Bible study. I was in college, and I'm, I'm, I'm driving back from the Bible study, and I see somebody I know, and nobody's on the road. And it's like at 10 o'clock at night, and I'm driving down to, uh, home, and I look over to see somebody, and my car kind of goes like this. All of a sudden, there's these bright lights behind me. Uh, I'm thinking, what happened? Oh, my gosh, I'm being pulled over. Well, it didn't help. They had very long hair. This guy pulls me over and goes, you've been smoking dope? I said, no, better than that, I've been at a Bible study. So now he thinks I'm a wise guy. Meanwhile, some of the kids, the high school kids who are in the Bible study, are now driving down Meridian Boulevard going, yeah, look at it. So they're laughing at me being pulled over. And they know that as a suburban kid, I'm probably not going to get in much trouble. They're going to say, fine. But if maybe if I was dressed differently, even, or if I was in the wrong place, according to this person who has the color of authority. And you can think of these you've experienced. One time, Janet and I were coming back into the country, um, <clears throat> and we're coming into LAX, and there's a screw-up that they had, my name was attached to somebody who was some nefarious you know, person, and they didn't know what to do because they're looking at me, and, they, and this guy wouldn't be, that, this nefarious guy wouldn't be with Janet. So, but still, we got to check. So they said, oh, could you come over here? And I said, well, why? And they said, just come over here. And they lead us into this little room with this people at this desk and, and sit down. I said, why am we here? Just sit down. Like, okay, you can't tell me why I'm here. No. Sit down. Now I'm thinking, this is wrong. Now, for the next 30 minutes, we're sitting there watching people from all over the world with not great language skills being pulled in and intimidated by the people at the desk and told to sit down. And now I'm fried. First of all, because we're really tired after 20 hours of coming back into Southern California. Now I'm fried because I'm thinking, these people don't have the security I do. I have an American passport, and I know this is a bogus thing. They could have just said, you know, confusion, we need to, sorry, you know, but it wasn't like that. So after a while, they go, uh, call our names, you can go. I said, what do you mean we can go? Why are we held? We don't even have to answer that. I said, first of all, you parked us here and wouldn't tell us why you're holding us. Now you're telling us to go? And we've been watching you make life miserable for people who possibly this is their first experience and exposure to the United States. Why were we held? And they said, well, it was a mistake. Well, couldn't you just said that? I said, this is a horrible way to run a, a department. And they said, well, the woman said, well, have you been to the DMV lately? I said, really? That's your best shot? You're comparing one flawed thing to another? So power, when we see power being corrupted, it, it drives us crazy. It drives you even more crazy if you realize I'm at a place where I can't do anything about it. Because a guy interrogating me has a gun, or the person has a club, 
or it's ugly and they could do they could make, throw me in a in, in a cell and forget about me if they wanted to this is why power is a big deal because we take that those obvious big uh, scenarios now you start making them more subtle and nuanced and it happens in school it happens at work it happens in your own home maybe you're in a home you're living in an environment where you're walking on eggshells around the people in your home you're in a corrupted power place I can't tell you how many people have told me over the years that they, they feel sick when they hear their dad's car come up or when their kid come in the door because they realize, oh my gosh, i got to walk on eggshells. Are you with me on this? The insidious nature of power. It was Lord Acton who said, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. I don't know if that's actually true, but it sounds pretty true. you got some power and you don't know how to use it, it can corrupt you. Gollum says, no, it's my ring. I'll wear it. So coercive compliance or compelling vision, which kind of power would you rather present to the world? Which would you rather, rather have presented to you? Coercive compliance or compelling vision? Hey, this isn't going to be easy, but if we just get it together and do this, it's going to be awesome. Are you all in? Yes, let's go for it. Versus if you go one step to the right or the left, I'm not going to shoot you. I'm going to shoot your family. Coercive. In the film God Almighty, this film came out a million years ago, uh, Jim Carrey uh, is Bruce, and he's criticizing the idea that there couldn't be a God who knows what's going on because he's, it's not working well for him. Morgan Freeman, being God, says, fine, I'm going to take a vacation. It's yours. You be God. Well, so now it's not going well for Bruce, and his girlfriend Grace, what a name, breaks up with him, and he's so frustrated he can't seem to manage it there's too many requests coming over for prayers and stuff, and Morgan Freeman comes back uh, between the legs of his vacation. He goes, hey, just checking in. How's it going? He goes, it's not going well. And he says this, how do you make someone love you without affecting their free will? And, and Freeman chuckles and says, welcome to my world, son. If you come up with an answer to that one, let me know. See, they, create, they, they present in this silly movie, they create this deep theological question. How do you resolve this antimony, a, a God who is sovereign and people with free will? Those two things don't go together. Which is it? And you'd say, well, it's both. How does that get resolved? And the question then we ask is, how did Jesus use power? It says in Colossians, a letter to the Colossians, all things were created through him. All things are held together by him. This is in Colossians chapter 1. So if all things were made through him and all things are held together by him, then maybe we should look to him and say, what does it look like when Jesus uses his power? First of all, he used it to bless, not to impress. He wasn't running a sideshow. Hey, check this out. Watch this. In fact, you see when you're reading the Gospels, he, when he does heal somebody, he says, don't make a big deal about this. Go show the priest you've been healed, that you don't have leprosy, you get back to your life. And there's a bunch of reasons for that I won't go into right now. But basically, he was not trying to impress anybody. He was simply blessing people. He was demonstrating who he was. Because what did he come to do? To proclaim and to teach and demonstrate that God was among us. God is now here. And so he led with love and grace and truth. And and Jesus used his power and strength to serve us, to defeat death, to save us, 
to lead us to the Father. And he demonstrates it with power, wisdom, courage, humility, vulnerability, credibility. I want to read you two uh, passages. One on the way to Jerusalem, Jesus is with his disciples, and once they're there, and he knows he's going to go to the cross, uh, another passage. But they, they overlap, and I want to read you these passages that are probably, if you've been reading the Bible, are familiar to you. So the first is from Matthew 20, 20 to 28. Now Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, up meaning because Jerusalem is higher than the rest of the land, it's 2,000-something you know, feet. So anywhere in Israel, if you're in the north and you're going to the south, you're going up to Jerusalem, even though you're going, we think down south. So they're going up to Jerusalem. On the way, he took the 12, his disciples aside, and said to them, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man, this a title comes out of the book of Daniel, talking about the Messiah, the one who'd come and save Israel. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. Now, this is Jesus predicting what's going to happen. Some pundits that dismiss this say, oh, no, somebody else wrote that long after the fact. They're putting words in Jesus' mouth. But we have great reason to believe that this is authentically Jesus saying this is what's going to happen. Previous to this, when he, had, he first said something like this, Peter had said, no, 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 don't do that. It's dangerous. And what did Jesus say to him? Get behind me, Satan. Where he, it says in Luke, he turned his face toward Jerusalem. So he's giving them this information, preparing them. Now, so these 12 have heard this, and no doubt they're talking about it with other people. You can't believe what Jesus said. Now, it looks like two brothers told their mom what Jesus said. It says, the mother of Zebedee's sons, James and John, came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked a favor of him. This is like the full-on, 100%, 110% Jewish mother. This is the birth announcement of a Jewish mother. We're announcing the birth of Dr. John Zebedee. Just let that sink in for a second. The assumption that my child is going to be super successful and accomplished. And so I'll give him a title right out of the womb. She asks this favor. What is it you want? Jesus asked. She said, just simply this. Grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left hand in your kingdom. That's it. Oh, the seats of power over all things. Small request, reasonable. We'll consider it. Get back to you. No. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? We can, they answered. I should say, we can, they lied. Because the cup he's referring to is that cup of Elijah that everybody, every Jew knows in, in the core of their being what it's like to sit at the Seder dinner, the Passover dinner. And there's always a cup of wine that nobody ever drinks. It'll only be consumed when this Elijah figure comes back and fulfills all the promises to redeem Israel. It's the cup that Jesus took when he, when he celebrated Holy Communion, the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper. This is the cup of my, this is the cup of my blood, the new covenant. I'm fulfilling it. So it's like, oh, nobody's ever took, taken that cup and drank it before. So Jesus is saying, can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? Well, of course, this is ultimate sacrifice. And they say, sure. They have no idea. So they're, they're repeating, really, you know, they're, they're, they're giving confirmation to it. You have no idea what you're asking. They don't even know. 
Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left hand is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they had been prepared by my Father. I wonder if it could be Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That might make more sense. The Trinity is a unity on the right and the left hand of God the Father. So, now here's what's funny. Human nature, a power play, a missed power opportunity. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Why do you think they were indignant? That they had the audacity to ask what they asked and claim what they claimed? No. They were first in line. You got to him before we did. You had to go home and tell your mom. Only a mom would be that resourceful to figure out, I'm going right to the top. But Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. They abuse their power. They keep people down. Their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. And this phrase, exercise authority, means they over-exercise their authority. They over-leverage the authority they have. They, they go out beyond what's appropriate. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. An incredible expression of power. A teachable moment for these disciples, talking about what power looks like. Now, to say you're a servant is, is like, are you kidding me? That's the upside-down version. The right-side-up version is you come from the top. But the power of the kingdom of God is that a servant leader is not afraid of their role, not afraid of their authority. They're not apologizing for the way that they, they function. They're saying, I know the source of my power, and I know how to use it appropriately. Now, people with power are, are, in the best sense, unmoved. They're responsive, but they're unmoved. They're not intimidated about their power. If somebody is abusing their power, oftentimes there's a faux confidence. And this is what's hard for us to sort out. Am I misusing my power and I'm confident in, out of belligerence or ignorance? Or am I confident because I'm so squarely focused and founded in, in the character of God, in, the, in God's word. This is a tricky thing. This is a big problem. Because sometimes you just don't know if the, if the bluster of somebody is credible or not. The next story, next passage, uh, this one out of John 13. It was just before the Passover festival. So this is, now they're in Jerusalem. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. And that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. This is a shocking moment. Jesus' act of humility to them looks like humiliation. I was one time in a swanky hotel 
on the Amalfi Coast with Janet and a couple friends. And it was such a charming old estate that was now this boutique hotel. They didn't have an elevator. So we're schlepping these bags up these stairs uh, in this beautiful place, but still, you're schlepping these bags. And um, one of the people with us said, don't they have people to do this sort of thing? And it was, a, it was, a, it was just, I couldn't stop laughing when, when she said this. I said, yeah, we're those people. Because she was thinking, and she's not a, a, a haughty person. She was just thinking, don't they have servants? People run out, scurry out you know, with the uniforms on and carry this stuff for you. Yeah, but in this situation, part of the charm factor is, you know, we're doing it, right? Our assumptions about what is appropriate for us to do or not do. Don't we have people to do this sort of thing? We all have this capacity. Every child knows that they do have people who do this sort of thing. It's mom and dad. And it's that rude, shocking moment when, when a kid gets old enough to realize, gee, mom and dad have retired and resigned from that position. And they're giving me the full privilege of taking care of myself. And just when they're getting used to that horrible idea, they have kids of their own who are going, hey, <laughs> isn't, aren't you the person who's supposed to be doing this sort of thing? Yeah, I think I am. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize what I am doing. Do you see this is a theme with him and his disciples? You have no idea what I'm doing. You have no idea what you're asking. Do you see why we substitute everything else for God but God? We don't understand, and we assume we do. Later, just... Do a word study on the word assume. That's all I'm going to say about that. He says, later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Now here's the weird thing, right? The human nature, the power thing. Peter says, no, you can't wash my feet. But a couple of chapters later, he's denying Jesus. We're so mixed up and confused about what we do with the power given to us. I'm going to have some faux humility and say, you can't wash my feet, but then I'm going to throw you under the bus when it's going to cost me something to confess you as my friend. Then Lord Simon Peter said, not just my feet, but my hands, my head as well. Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his, his place, the table. And then he says, do you understand what I have done for you? This is, a, again, a lesson in power. A demonstration of power. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so. For that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you'll be pleased if you do them. Have you noticed that in our culture, people really are attracted to power? They have no idea how to bring with them the character that makes power palatable. 
You have knucklehead people in Congress disrupting the work of Congress because they have a taste for power, but no character to support it. You have people running schools that don't seem to care about the actual students. They care about something else at an administrative level. There's a misuse of power there. There's no character that supports what you'd expect would be the appropriate level of character and integrity to actually utilize that power in a way that is absolutely beneficial and a blessing. Now, when you do see it in the current structures in our world, you're shocked. When that person who is a customer service agent actually gives you customer service, you have a crush on them. You want to you come to my birthday party? Can I send you a, a note? You know, when you see anybody helping anybody with their authority, and they go over to the top, and they're careful, and they're kind, and you're confused at the check-in or whatever, and they're going, no, no, we'll, we'll, we'll work this out. Versus, would you step aside, please? We're blown away. Why are we blown away? Because it's so unusual. It's so unusual when, when competence and character come together under the color of authority, and Jesus is revealing this to them. Do you see the power alone will crush you and crush everybody through you? It's your character rooted in me that allows you to keep perspective. So you're not humiliated when you're acting as a servant leader. You're ennobled. You don't resent the people you're serving. You feel like it's a privilege to serve them. You're not managing your image. You're fulfilling your calling. You see the power of this, in power? All of us can do this, but we're afraid to because we think there might be a downside that I can't see yet, unintended consequences. I'll be treated as a lackey. I'll be taken advantage of. Yes, you will. Let's just answer that right now. You live like a servant leader, you will be taken advantage of. People will confuse your kindness for weakness. Your generosity, hey, you're an easy mark. Now, it doesn't mean you don't have boundaries. The wise leader finds ways to have boundaries that allow them not to just waste a lot of time at the whim of immature people with no character. But this is the risk you have to take if you're going to use power wisely at any age and stage of your life. You have new challenges in every season of your life to say, what is the power entrusted to me at this season of my life? If you're retired, you might say, I don't have the, the card or the title or the office, but I have influence. How am I going to use it in this season of my life? It could be that you're the very junior person in the organization, in the lab, in the office, in the company. And now part of your learning curve in, in rightly handling power is managing up. Every young leader has to learn how to manage up, right? Ask the man from McKinsey. Ask the man um, who, the woman from, who runs a, a, an important you know, medical lab. They're looking for those younger people who aren't whining and moaning, but are managing up and bringing to them solutions and insights that allow them to go, ah, I see a leader in the making. Power, a divorce from character, is a disaster. That's why Satan, Milton, the great poet, has this epic poem, Paradise Lost. And in that poem, he has Satan saying, I'd rather be the king of hell than a servant in heaven. As long as it has king in my title, that's all I need. So he says, very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Power is such an incredible privilege. And there's nothing that brings a, a leader more joy than to, to find that they're learning how to use their power 
constructively, creatively, compassionately, effectively. They're willing to get up early and stay up late. They're willing to suffer and even make sacrifices. Why? Because of the power? No. The impact of seeing how people are being blessed when power is rightly used. So when you seek God, you receive his power. If you merely seek his power, you will miss him. Memorize that. If you seek the Lord, you will receive his power. If you seek power, you will not see the Lord. And they look so close. I got the title. I got the uniform. I've got the credentials. Mm. You're seeking power. And why does this happen? Because those who seek power are on a different path than the way that leads to God. The way to God leads to power. The way to power leads to something else and something less. Judas left the path. If you're motivated by anger, pride, revenge, or control, you won't find God. You can invoke his name. You can use religious verbiage. You can quote the Bible. If you're motivated by anger, pride, revenge, or control, you will not find God. You will not bless people. And you might hear him calling you. You might hear him calling you. Jesus was calling out to Judas, really. All along for three years, he's calling out to Judas. Judas, Judas. Are you understanding this? Are you listening to me? But eventually his voice will be drowned out by your own anger and pride. Judas is saying, Jesus didn't live up to my expectations. I know what I'm going to do. I know where the power is. Whoa. What did, Jesus, what did Judas do? He was so filled with regret and self-loathing, but still so prideful. He wouldn't repent. He hung himself. Peter denies Jesus. What does he do? He's stuffing his shame. He's stuffing his regret until Jesus says, hey, if we talked, do you love me? And to his credit, Peter, the hard-headed, know-it-all guy, said, yes, I love you. Jesus asked him three times, do you love me, do you love me, do you love me? Yes, I love you. So eventually, like Judas, some will realize that they've been deceived by their own hubris, but even then their pride is too great, their humility and misplaced self-respect has locked them into a prison of their own making. Or some, like Peter, will regret their self-will and fear and be made and be led to repentance and restoration. Who are you listening to? What voice are you listening to? The voice of your wounded Lord who died on your behalf and rose again from the grave. Or, or the voice of your wounded pride. Sometimes it's hard for me to tell which one I'm listening to. That's why I need to have people around me who will say, hey, you know, I get why you're feeling that. Those are valid feelings. What are you going to do with that? Is this the way that's going to honor God and bless people or gratify your rightfully held sense of hurt and offense? How about if you let go of your hurt and offense and seek the Lord? I love the way the Bible says, revenge is mine, says the Lord. 
So who are you listening to? Augustine, um, you know, St. Thomas Aquinas and St. Augustine, two major heavyweights whose ideas we still feed on. Augustine realized that he had been putting off God for so long um, that all of a sudden he had this big flash of insight, and it was like God speaking to him, and the voice sounded like this. To his, his voice, but speaking as if God was now inspiring him. He said, why did I wait so long to do it God's way? Why did I wait so long? Why was I constantly holding him off? And then and this is the beautiful poet, poetic way that Augustine said it. He was a rhetorician. He was a beautiful communicator, brilliant guy. And so in his confessions, he says it this way. Too late have I loved you. Too late, he's talking to God. Too late have I loved you. You were, you were with me, but I was not with you. Proximity to Jesus isn't going to cut it. You've heard it said a thousand times, you know, uh, sleeping in a garage does not make you a car. Proximity to God. At the end of time, it says that some people will say, hey, all the great things I did in your name, and Jesus will say, I, I don't know you. I don't know you. So self-serving power is fear-based. It isolates us. It uh, not only isolates us, it diminishes whatever we touch. It makes life bitter, not better. It divides rather than unites, whether it's in a marriage or in a family or in a company, in a church, in a school, in a social setting. It's corrosive to the soul. It's like drinking poison, hoping somebody else dies. And as Jesus said, you know them by their fruits. So ask yourself, does your power reflect the fruit of the Spirit? Or does it undermine the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. And it's okay to say, no, it doesn't. I'm a failure and I'm ashamed. Don't go there. Say, actually, no, it doesn't. Lord, how do you want to use this situation to prune me, to redirect my roots? You're not, you're not shut out of the kingdom because you don't see the fruit of the Spirit. That's a wake-up call that, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm pursuing the wrong kingdom. I need to pursue His kingdom and His righteousness, and all things will follow from that. So let me wrap up by saying this. Jesus' power is sacrificial and life-giving. We see this over and over and over again. He was bold. He was confident. If you watch that show, The Chosen, you have a whole new appreciation uh, for, the, for the powerful presence of Jesus, just simply being present to God and present to us. Yes, he was God, but he said that we get to do the things that he did. That's, that's for another day, a different study. But Jesus said, you will do the things that I've done. In fact, you will do greater things than I've done. So we're emulating him, not just because he's an example. We don't need help doing it. We just go, I'll be like Jesus. No. If he's our example, we say it takes the Holy Spirit in us to help us become what Jesus alone is. But yes, he is our example. Go and do likewise. He wasn't passive. He wasn't obsequious. He wasn't self-serving, deceptive, deceitful. He didn't play gimme or gotcha. Here's a description of Jesus and the impact he has on people who walk with him. 
Why? Because God has loved Jesus as God. Jesus is love. Love is not Jesus. Love is not God. But Jesus is love. You're familiar with 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient. Love is kind. Try this one on. Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. Jesus does not envy. Jesus does not boast. Jesus is not proud. Jesus does not dishonor others. Jesus is not self-seeking. Jesus is not easily angered. Jesus keeps no record of wrongs. Jesus does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Jesus always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. It gives me a warm, snug feeling reading that. The feeling kind of dissipates when I start saying things like, Steve is patient, Steve is kind, Steve is, oh, I have a lot to learn from Jesus, apparently. Because when I read Jesus' name there, it doesn't feel hypocritical or weird. It feels like perfect. The, the key in the tumbler unlocks his kingdom. And so John said it this way in 1 John 3.16. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. This is your power. The power of God in us, in you. This is the power that saves and sanctifies. Sanctifies just means you're set apart for a greater purpose than the one you think you have. Greater power than you think you uh, want. So use your power to bless people, even when they insult you, harass you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you. Why? Because love casts out fear. Speak the truth in love. This is the power of the cross. This is the power available to you. You know, you don't have to wait 10 years or 20 years. You can have it today. By simply submitting yourself to Jesus. Lord, come into my life. Forgive my sins. Teach me your ways. I love that. Full access. Full access. And those of us who have known him for a long time are so easily distracted that we, we too come back and say, oh, that's right. Peter said in this, in, in this way in his letter, he said, right into people who didn't know him, but were, you know, probably would have been intimidated to be with him. He was epic to them. He was Peter. He said, I write to you because you have a faith as precious as ours. So this is for everybody. Not some spiritual leap. Everybody can have the power of God and function under it and out of it. So Lord Jesus, this is my prayer for me, for my family, for my friends, for all of us here. That we would experience your power in a way that would humble us and set us free to experience it and to express it in ways that would point to you, that would bring you glory and honor, that would bless people. Even when we confront, we do it in love. When we comfort, we do it in love. That, Lord, we'd learn that there's no downside to your love because at, you, at the heart of your love is the heart of our power. So we commit ourselves to you as we continue to worship you. In Jesus' name, amen. This is a time of offering. This is personal offering. You can give financially in all kinds of ways. There's a little box there. You can send it in. Uh, but right now, it's you offering you to the Lord. So, so open your heart mind to him as we worship him in this last song. And then I'll, I'll bring a benediction, a blessing.
pray for you, with you, for anything that concerns you, or if you have a concern on behalf of somebody else, go right out around the corner. There's a lovely prayer garden there. There'll be some people who would be happy to pray with you. You can tell them what you want prayer about, or if you don't know how to describe it, just say, please pray for me. Uh, it's really a great thing to have people pray for you. Uh, also, there's things to eat and drink and an opportunity to hang out and talk and get to know some people, so please take advantage of that. Uh, some of you who have been interested to uh, go visit Grace City Church, we're going to be doing a really fun merge with them. Uh, if you, there's some maps, go right down Genesee uh, to University High School uh, and jump in on that service if you'd like to see what they're doing down there. We'll keep you posted on, on, on what's going forward that way. In the meantime, whatever we can do to help you take those next steps in your relationship with Christ, let us know. Reading the Bible, understanding what you're reading in the Bible, uh, being in a life group where you can talk about the Bible and, and life with other people. A ways to use the gifts that God has given you in service of others. We, we, we're, here to, we're here to help in any way we can. So now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord, who loves you more than you can ask or even imagine, give you everything you need to walk in newness and fullness of life with him, both now and forevermore. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for being with us. Have a good rest of your day. It's a new day dawning. It's time to sing your song again.